It's June 2nd, 2019, and this is episode 399 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi there. And Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. On today's show, we'll kick things off talking about the recent Binance hack as it pertains to the ever-fresh idea of rolling back the Bitcoin blockchain. You say Binance, I say Binance. I don't know. I say Binance, too. And it's funny because I, I thought it was Binance. That's what I used to call it. And then I was like, Binance? Like finance? Oh, I got it. I understood. Right. It's a play. Yeah, it's like finance. Oh, that's that's a good point. It probably is like finance. Huh. It only dawned on me recently. Don't, don't, don't worry. But some people also say finance. So it, although that's more of a verb. But anyway, I, however you pronounce it, they got hacked. Okay. Indeed. All right. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks to everybody for sitting in on today's discussion. And without further ado, we're going to start with a quote from Coindesk. Quote, in the wake of a multi-million dollar hack on Tuesday, Peng Zhao, which hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, although today who knows, the CEO of cryptocurrency-related startup Binance publicly discussed whether the company might seek to encourage Bitcoin miners and node operators to roll back the Bitcoin blockchain, reversing transactions confirmed by the network to return the funds. Zhao said, quote, to be honest, we can actually do this probably within the next few days. But there are concerns that if we do a rollback on the Bitcoin network at that scale, it may have some negative consequences in terms of destroying the credibility for Bitcoin, <laughs> end quote. Outside of Binance, this has had the reaction that you might expect. And the CEO of Binance said in the follow-up tweet that after speaking with various parties, the exchange decided not to pursue the rollback approach. But playing devil's advocate, I want to discuss this, and I, I think that we all want to discuss this because there's a, a meaty topic here, which is how do you actually go about doing this? And the answer to that is actually really simple. It's that you don't. <laughs> there are lots of ways that people have tried to do this over the years, but the reality is that it's not something that in practice, in Bitcoin at least, has ever worked. However, it seems like there are a lot of similarities here between the Ethereum and Ethereum Classic split. In that circumstance, there was a large theft and a minority of interested parties organized a rollback of the blockchain where effectively the theft never occurred. Today, we know that chain, the rollback chain, as Ethereum, and the main chain where the platform was not explicitly modified as Ethereum Classic. So with the benefit of hindsight, given that this seemed to work for Ethereum, let's just start off there with the easiest question of all. Why wouldn't this work for Bitcoin or what's different between these situations? So wait a minute, let me just summarize what you said, Adam. Just because you can doesn't mean you should, but can you? <laughs> Is that what you're asking? Right. <laughs> that's, exactly. that's a great way to put it. Exactly. And, and, yeah. And that's where the similarities really end, because first of all, that's not what happens with Ethereum. I, I think it, it's important to, to clarify exactly what happened. So the similarities here are the similarities in the political consensus in that there was a debate among stakeholders, participants, and uh, scary armies of trolls about whether it should or shouldn't happen. So there was that was very similar to what happened with Ethereum Classic. But in technical terms, it's quite different. And, and one of the reasons it's different is because of the difference in the way the two blockchains work. So Bitcoin is a UTXO-based ledger. A UTXO-based ledger means that there are transaction outputs that are tracked uh, and chained together from transaction to transaction, and they are spent with each transaction in full. Um, whereas Ethereum is an account-based ledger. 
where what is tracked is the state of balances of accounts. In Bitcoin, we don't track balances. We track coins that are moving. Uh, in Ethereum, we track the balances that remain after coins have moved. So it's actually uh, technically that means that the way you would do this is different. The other important consideration is that Ethereum did not do a rollback. It did not do a rollback um, invalidating blocks at all. What it did was it did a very kind of targeted intervention where it changed the code of the DAO contract with a hard fork without rolling back any blocks. So we've talked about this in the past when we were years ago talking about tokens built on top of Bitcoin. The idea is, is that the way that Bitcoin UTXOs work is very similar to having a wallet full of specific bills, you know, specific pieces of cash, right? Whereas each one of those pieces of cash has its own history and might have changed different hands, it still remains a piece of cash that has its own history. Whereas with something like Ethereum or tokens built on top of Bitcoin, typically what you're looking at is more of a checking balance or a checkbook type of situation, where instead of taking out specific bills and sending those which have their unique history, in fact, what you're doing is you're saying, give this person, transfer X amount of balance. And it's- Well, you're saying debit this account and credit that account rather than moving a specific bill from one pocket to another. Yes, exactly. So you're changing a number. Right. Rather so in, than moving an item. Right. And so the difference between those things in this case is that with the just changing a number, that doesn't necessarily affect the whole provenance of everything that's happened to that point that affected those balances. But in the case of Bitcoin, it necessarily would just because of the way that Bitcoin is built on top of those transactions. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that causes some technical difficulties in this brilliant plan to roll back um, the chain and undo things that have happened. Just talking about it from a game theory perspective, why do you think that the uh, change for Ethereum worked? Do you think it was because it affected so few people that it wasn't that controversial? Or was it because there was consensus about that this should happen? Right. Was it a social consensus, really? It was both. There were a number of mitigating factors, I think, in the DAO hack. And, and keep in mind, I'm not agreeing with the way it was done. In fact, I was quite vocal that it shouldn't have done, happened, but it, it did. Nevertheless, the, the, the culture in Ethereum is different than Bitcoin's. There was less emphasis on immutability and more emphasis on social consensus. And also there was a very big difference in the maturity and development of the chain. You know, this happens at a very different stage in the maturity of Ethereum. And arguably Bitcoin also had a major change that involved a rollback at an approximately similar time in the maturity of Bitcoin, which was when a single block generated a few billion Bitcoins due to a bug in the code. And that was rolled back. Um, so, you know, there, there's an argument to be made that when you have a young chain, you get at least one mulligan, <laughs> maybe no more. And it, it does create a dangerous precedent, but this was a price worth paying in, in the eyes of social consensus. Bitcoin obviously is a very different stage of maturity with much bigger stakes um, than Ethereum at the moment, as well as a very different culture as to what is acceptable, a much more conservative culture as to what's acceptable. And that's great because they have different purposes. Uh, Bitcoin is attempting to be uncensorable sound money, and, and that uncensorable part is very, very intimately tied with the ability to have irreversible transactions, even if the majority of social consensus wants to reverse a transaction. In Ethereum, that's not really a goal, right? 
So um, the goal is to have flexible smart contracts, a different set of applications. And, and therefore, it doesn't matter as much. Uh, again, this is a very difficult philosophical issue. So, so there is a difference in social consensus and culture and technology. So what was actually the idea about how CZ was intending to do this rollback? What was the actual proposal to achieve the rollback with Binance? Because he was saying it's not really a rollback. It's actually just sort of a redistribution. Do you guys buy that or is that not really true? Well, actually, the vinyl proposal was to burn the coins, not to return them to Binance, but to send them to a known bad address, an address that doesn't have a private key to a burn address, basically or to create a transaction that sends them entirely to fees so that um, the miners are incentivized to roll back, implement the double spend transaction instead of the theft transaction, and send all of the money to fees, which is their reward, effectively. Binance doesn't get it, but neither does the thief, and that way justice has been served. Yeah, I mean, to me, it doesn't really sound like it matters what where the coins are redistributed or if justice is served, it is still a rollback because it is performing a 51% attack on the chain, right? A double spend attack. Yes, absolutely. And that has enormous implications for the credibility of the immutability arguments. If you can do this, either through social consensus pressure or technically, then that's a that's bad news. The other thing that, that's interesting to me is that this was presented often by media as CZ decided to, and then CZ decided not to. Um, <laughs> it was more like CZ imagined that he could, and then right. CZ was confronted <laughs> with the reality that he couldn't, and simply accepted that reality, because it wasn't really they chose not to do it. Cooler heads prevailed and said, you know, not only is this bad, but in fact, it probably would fail, most likely would fail and cause enormous damage in the process. So you really can't achieve this thing that you want to achieve. I mean, I could see, you know, why someone would be tempted by that, right? Because you lose $40 million, even if you can't recover it, it seems like, wow, wouldn't, you, wouldn't it be delicious to get back at the person who did that? So I can understand the temptation. Yeah, this time it would. But then what happens when next time that's mandated in order to get back at someone who is running for opposition in the Russian election right. or, um, you know, was involved in a website that's selling something that people don't want sold or whatever else it is. You know, once you breach that barrier, once you breach the concept of immutability and you show, and this is the important part, if the miners demonstrate the ability to do, they immediately acquire the responsibility to do, the legal responsibility to do. And then, you know, all bets are off. And I, I'm glad that, in fact, they don't actually have the ability to do. And I think that's an important analysis we need to think about, which is, could they have done this? My argument is no, they couldn't, even if they wanted to. So all the funds were stolen in a single transaction. So what they wanted to do in order to solve this problem is effectively create a transaction which would be put into the mining pool in such a way so that it would incentivize people to put it, the miners to put it in, even though it's out of order 
relative to what actually happened on the blockchain with this theft. So this account has no money in it right now in reality, but they're sending a transaction that authorizes a transfer from it and telling miners that if you process this in such a way so that it reverses the, the theft earlier, then we will pay you more in terms of fees or we will pay you all of it basically in terms of fees. Is that a, a rough understanding here? Well, not really, because again, miners are not the basis of consensus validation. Everyone is the basis of consensus validation. Now, think about this from, from this perspective. Let's say 100 blocks after the original transaction has been mined, the miners accept into the mining pool this double spend transaction and mine it in a subsequent block. Uh, that block is invalid. And it's invalid and will be rejected by every single node on the network because it contains a double spend. There's no question, it won't propagate. In fact, Getting that transaction to the miners is almost impossible. You, you have to do it through a back channel because you can't propagate it on the Bitcoin network. Everyone will see it, say, no, I've already spent this in a previous block. I'm not propagating this transaction. And then if you got it to the miners and they actually mined it, the block they mined it in would not propagate out. The moment they showed it to anyone, they would go, hang on, this transaction is spending something that's already been spent, invalid. Therefore, the block is invalid. Bye-bye. So the only way to do this is to, in fact, go back to the block where the original transaction was mined and mine a new child on its parent, a sibling, an alternative reality, a hundred blocks back, that contains this transaction instead of the other one, and then mine forward for a hundred blocks until you exceed the uh, difficulty, the cumulative difficulty of the chain, and then submit this new chain after shadow mining it, so that all the nodes say, hang on, there's a new chain that's 101 blocks or greater difficulty that is essentially the valid chain and replace all of their history with that. And then it is valid. But that means remining however many blocks have elapsed. And the more time goes by, of course, the more difficult this becomes. And you still have to spend the energy. You're not getting the reward twice. Now, keep in mind, the miners who would do this have already spent the energy the first time, and they've already received the reward the first time. If they replace that chain and they spend the energy again, they're going to receive the reward again, but only one of the rewards is going to count, right? Because they're orphaning one reward to assume the other. So they get paid once, but they've spent the energy twice, meaning someone has to compensate them for 12 and a half Bitcoin per block times however many blocks have elapsed, which means this gets more and more and more expensive. And that's if they succeed. If they don't succeed, the energy is being spent for nothing. Dangerous, right? This is a very risky proposition to the miners. They have a chance of succeeding, but it's a small chance if they have no opposition. And we'll talk about that in a second. Well, and that was what I was going to say is, um, so like, how much does consensus, not necessarily on the blockchain, but community consensus come into play in this sort of decision making at all? Like if there was support for this type of action, could a hard fork be deployed across the network that would allow for this sort of thing? But it, I mean, obviously that would take a lot of consensus and a lot of coordination, which certainly doesn't exist in this case. I'm just trying to figure out, is it even hypothetically possible for us to go down that rabbit hole? It's hypothetically, it's possible for the developers who were broadly against this to issue new software that contained um, basically a hard fork that said, ignore this invalid transaction and consider it valid, destroying the, the, the chain. 
So you have um, to specifically exempt the thing that you want to do from the protocol. Otherwise, the fact that, that that it violates the protocol means that it doesn't even get into the network. That's the whole core here. But, but it's more complicated than that. Because, again, uh, the, the validation by independent nodes um, validates every aspect of the block, including the amount of work that's gone into it. Um, so here's another thing which we haven't really considered here, which is, okay, so you invalidate that transaction. What about its children? So what's happened in those hundred blocks that have elapsed? I'm using that as a hypothetical number. In those hundred blocks, has that money just sat there? No, it hasn't. And if the attacker is smart, it's moved multiple times. Some of those moves may involve moving it to other exchanges, swapping it for other cryptocurrencies, creating bilateral obligations and liabilities with other parties. Because if that person goes and sells some of that, on another exchange, someone bought that. Now, if you go and invalidate the original transaction, you have to invalidate all of the children, right? Which means you're ta you're taking back money that belongs to someone else that has already been confirmed by six blocks. That is that is a that is you're basically adding a theft to the theft. <laughs> I went on an exchange that's not involved in this scandal at all that actually did their security correctly bought some Bitcoin from someone during their market operations, and then a hundred blocks later, after everything's been confirmed and I'm very comfortable that this Bitcoin is good, suddenly the chain gets reorganized by a hundred blocks and I no longer bought Bitcoin. I mean, that's that's what precedent is that? So you've got to think about the fact that that transaction fans out, and it fans out pretty quickly, it was confirmed within two minutes, and I think within the next block, it was already fanned out to multiple dollar transactions, which then fanned out even further. And if the attack is smart, they're going to start moving that money as quickly as possible to as many places as possible to create as much entanglement as possible so that the rollback becomes unthinkable. Right. Right. And it becomes unthinkable because effectively what's happening is that the more this mixes, the more collateral damage there winds up being. And it's not even about the mixing necessarily, is it? Because even without the mixing, if you did, if you did, uh, were able to pull off some type of rollback like this, you'd be unwinding transactions that potentially have nothing to do with anything. Well, th those transactions are going to get replayed. That's not necessarily a big problem because reconvergence of the chain and replaying of the transactions happens on a on a weekly basis, and it's invisible. Users don't even notice that a that a block gets orphaned every now and then because of timing consistencies or coincidences. Um, and and their transaction just gets replayed into the next block. It's not a big deal. But okay, so this really is just direct collateral damage, then. Yes, and then the, the other, then you come up with a moral and philosophical question: How many innocent victims are acceptable as collateral damage? My answer is zero. If this is a system where we want network enforced justice uh, through consensus, zero victims is acceptable as collateral. Even if you assume that it's okay to take it back from the thief, which again creates a terrible precedent because who decided they're a thief, um, you know, on what basis and how do you adjudicate that? And it's very dangerous to go to mob rule and um, just say, well, if the majority wants to take property, then they can at a 51%. Even in a democracy, you can't take property on a 51% basis. So in summary, you know, at, at first glance, it seems like, and to people who are not familiar with proof of work and how consensus in Bitcoin has these multiple constituencies. At first glance, it seems like you can just say, okay, we'll just roll back and remove that transaction and all this hunky-dory. The truth is there are a lot of complexities involved. The first complexity is 
the sheer immutability caused by proof of work or created by proof of work that means that to go back and roll back means expending the energy which you only get rewarded for once but you spend twice so that has an enormous cost so first is immutability itself in bitcoin which is guaranteed by energy is is a very big obstacle to changing the past and it the cost mounts with every block that passes and becomes enormously high very very quickly the second is dealing with the collateral effect on the 300,000 transactions a day and how much of that has been tainted touched or depends on the original transaction you roll back and how many innocents you're going to take with you but the third and interesting one is all of this assumes that your action would be unopposed which in an adversarial network is the absolutely worst assumption to make and it was clear in all of the discussions let's just bribe the miners great and what happens next and the what happens next i think is very interesting because assuming that the thief will just lie back and take it or that the rest of the network will just lie back and take it the users the other exchanges everybody else will just say ah oh, well i guess they bribed the miners we'll just roll with it that's a very wrong assumption so let's talk about countermeasures. I think this is where it gets really interesting. First, let's talk about what happens when you bribe the miners. So um, the person who is trying to get a rollback needs to bribe the miners to go back and remine X number of blocks at energy costs with a promise that if it's successful, they'll get a bribe. Uh, of course, they, they don't know how likely it is to be successful. Now let's talk about the thief. Uh, well, the thief can actually bribe the miners based on that transaction to not roll it back. And the beauty here is all the thief has to do is create a child transaction that pays a smaller bribe. So they can take some chunk of this 41 million, how much is good, 4 million? And give it to miners who oppose the rollback. Now, because that transaction is a child of the rollback transaction, it you can only take that bribe if you don't support the rollback. But here's the beauty of it. You don't need to do a rollback to support that bribe, to take that bribe. That bribe is valid if you don't remind the chain, if you maintain the status quo, which means you don't have to spend the energy to get that bribe. So that bribe is much more achievable and therefore needs to be much smaller. Do you see what I'm going mm -hmm. with here? Yeah. The bribe from Binance would have to be big enough to pay for all of the electricity that would be spent to roll back a hundred blocks or however more, and discounted by the probability of failure, which is pretty damn high. Whereas the bribe from the thief has no energy cost, it's free for the taking, depends on you doing nothing but supporting the status quo so that if you take that bribe, it's invisible as to whether you did it deliberately or simply wanted the status quo. So you're not going to get any of the social consequences of being, you know, hounded as a traitor to the immutability cause. Um, so there's no cost. There's no social cost of taking that bribe. Um, there's, there's no energy cost of taking that bribe. And all you have to do is do nothing. <laughs> yeah, that right. sounds like a great deal. <laughs> So from a game theory perspective, if, you're not, if you look at it from the naive perspective, obviously you can bribe the miners to roll back, but that assumes the thief isn't going to counter that with a better bribe. And the thief has a massive advantage, which is they're trying to preserve the status quo, and there is a built-in cost to trying to beat the status quo in Bitcoin, which is proof of work. Now that's assuming nobody else does anything else, because as far as I'm concerned, it's just as likely that users would circulate 
a patched ver version of the software, uh, I would probably do the pull request quite quickly, that simply checkpoints a block after that happens, preventing a successful rollback through bribing. All you have to do is one block after, and says my clients will reject any chains that attempt to roll back with great accumulative difficulty something that that doesn't contain that block, and boom, my software will reject it. Now that is the equivalent of what we saw on August first, twenty seventeen, which was the threat of the user activated soft fork. It's a soft fork because what you're doing is you're preserving the status quo. It's not really a soft fork at all, but it's a user activated countermeasure where my node simply refuses to accept as valid the traditional rules, which are greatest difficulty chain no matter what, and says, no, I'm going to say greatest difficulty chain as long as it contains that block. I'm not going to let you do a rollback. You're not going to break immutability. Now, if enough nodes do that, and keep in mind all of the exchanges and wallets that are going to potentially be involved in the collateral damage of a rollback, which can be massive, um, are quite likely to adopt that rule change, and boom, the rollback doesn't happen. It's as simple as that. If if enough nodes do that, then the difficulty of achieving the rollback suddenly becomes massive, and eventually becomes untenable. Now the miners are facing the possibility of spending all of that energy to ultimately fail. They not only will not get the bribe, they also will have spent the electricity. And that adds up to potentially tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of losses because they're being actively opposed by the rest of the constituents of consensus. And that's not even counting the social impact, which we can talk about next. I'm just appreciating that. I'm really glad we're talking through this because it seems like it's kind of complicated and there's all these things to consider, but somehow it just works out, right? It's like, this is the beauty of this system that now sort of just works on its own. It's reached some kind of critical mass. And, um, you know, it doesn't seem like, at least right now, it's vulnerable to uh, having the, the core principle of no rollbacks compromised. The essence of this is the energy components of proof of work creating enormously powerful incentives to preserve history. Which means that when you come into an adversarial environment where one party is trying to reverse history and the other party is trying to preserve it, the party who's trying to reverse history has the enormous burden of energy for reversing proof of work, whereas the party that's trying to preserve it has a very, very low burden. And that applies whether you're talking about miners who decide to take the Binance bribe or the thief's bribe. It's not symmetric. The, the thief's bribe has a lot less burden. And a lot less risk, but it also applies to users who decide to checkpoint and say, "I'm I'm not going to let you do a rollback." And, and the cost for me upgrading my node to include that patch is almost zero. It will take me about ten minutes to do the code changes. The cost of failure is that I then have to change my node back if the rest of the network ends up actually rolling back and and everybody accepts that as the correct chain and I end up on the wrong side. Well, you know, I played a game for a bit. In the meantime, I'm probably not going to do any transactions because you know, the chain is in contention. So transaction volume would drop to zero, which also is going to hurt the miners. You know, if this was announced, the moment it was announced, no more transactions on the network. No one's crazy enough to do transactions on a network 
that is under active battle for a hundred block rollback, right? Or or more. Uh, and, and so transaction volume immediately goes to zero, which means now miners are paying the extra price of not having fees. All of these incentives line up, and suddenly the thing you thought was an easy thing that the, a company could decide or choose suddenly becomes this enormous thing that starts costing. And if you make the wrong choice, the price you pay, as we saw during the BCH fork, is is very very high some of the companies involved in that lost hundreds of millions of dollars that they're never going to get back by making the wrong choice you can scream about consensus you can posture about consensus you can claim you could shout you can tweet but if you put your money behind your mouth and try to mess with consensus you're taking an enormous risk that will will end up costing a lot of money you know, it seems like this is not a new story. Bitcoin has always looked like something that, as a leaderless type of organization, was receptive to leaders, right? To people who take on a leadership role within the community, whether deserved or not, uh, you know, and for whatever reason, right? Sometimes it was, um, you know, developers, sometimes it's been business people, sometimes entrepreneurs. But it really seems like it's one of those situations where you might be standing in front of the parade, but as soon as you hold up that baton and try to make a left-hand turn, well, chances are pretty good the parade's going to keep walking right on past in the originally scheduled program. <laughs> and run you over in the process. Yeah, exactly. There's another little insight that comes from this, which I think is important to emphasize. Miners are not as powerful as people think. So I got a lot of responses to my tweet about this and saying there won't be a rollback. It's almost impossible. The risk is too high. It probably wouldn't work. And people said, no, all it takes is six people in China to decide and it's happening. First of all, that's pool owners, which is not miners. And that shows a level of misunderstanding. But then again, all of these layers and layers that make up the game theory of consensus mean that even if the miners themselves decided to do that. It is far from a foregone conclusion. And in an adversarial environment, you have to count on the other side taking action and not just sitting back and letting you grab power. Uh, I would take action. I can tell you that I, as a node operator, as a holder of Bitcoin, would take action to prevent, prevent a rollback because I understand what's at stake here. What's at stake here is the very fragile cultural aspect of immutability, which needs to be protected with a very not fragile proof of work guarantee. And I would take action to protect that, uh, to defend and protect the consensus of this system against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. I, you know, I've been doing some math over here thinking about the, the actual kind of game theory on, as you said, like in an adversarial scenario. And I think that for a rollback, you would be talking about an order of magnitude more or at least, you know, several times more than the amount of money that was stolen. Because the game theory says that that person who stole that money has no cost on that money except for, I mean, let's assume it cost them a million dollars, right, to pull off this robbery. You know, well, that million dollars, well, they've got $41 million there, whereas that's $41 million that's a liability on the exchanges side. So if they're putting more money in trying to, you know, trying to do this incentivization, that has to come out of money that they haven't already had stolen, whereas the guy who stole the money can literally just recycle back some of those funds in. As you said, uh, there's so much less risk to accept the status quo bribe than to accept the rewrite history bribe. 
I'm just trying to figure out what a what a number where it could be possible. Like if they wanted to spend three hundred million dollars getting forty one million dollars back, I think that maybe that actually is a sufficient number, but that doesn't make any sense, obviously. Well, it, it does, because that's that's a really good argument, which came up on, on Twitter as well in this discussion, which is, okay, even if you say it's not possible to do this for $40 million, what about 400, what about 4 billion? Are there circumstances in which a rollback would be possible where the amount of social pressure, the money at stake, and the amount of consensus would be great enough? Well, we already know the answer to that. It's a few billion Bitcoin, and it happened in 2013 or 2012, <laughs> I believe, um, which was when a block was mined that had a Coinbase transaction that had a ridiculous amount of Bitcoin in it, far beyond 21 million, and that was rolled back. And it was a no-brainer. There wasn't even much of a debate, right? Everybody was on the same page. It's like, oh, bug, let's fix it. Boom, done. And, and so, yes, absolutely, there are levels at which immutability can get rolled back, but it requires alignment of all of the constituencies of consensus so that there's very little resistance. And it will still likely cause a fork where both chains will survive because there will always be a holdback on principle alone, even at that stake. So the question then is, how much is that money? Like, what is the number at which it is possible to do a rollback? I, I think it's several billion dollars. And for what reasons? And, and how fast can you do it? Because again, the problem is, unless you act immediately, so try to start the rollback within an, a matter of hours at most from the moment it happens, your risk and cost and collateral damage keep increasing until it becomes untenable very, very quickly. I don't think you can go beyond a day without the collateral damage becoming too great. It's time for another Sponsor Minute with Matt from Purse.io, the easiest way to spend your Bitcoin and save 15% or more on Amazon. Matt, last week we talked about how Purse is giving back with a new free and open source project called Handshake. Can you tell us a little more? Sure. Handshake is a new blockchain designed to decentralize certificate authority and DNS naming on the internet. It extends the current existing root zone and falls back to the legacy DNS system. So the aim is to extend DNS the way it works already, not just try to replace it. The owners of the Alexa top 100,000 websites already have their names reserved on chain. And if you're an open source developer with 15 or more followers on GitHub with a registered SSH or PGP key, you have coins waiting for you on the blockchain that are locked by your own keys. So you'll be able to redeem those on block one. The design here is to throw away the ICO model and have a free open source crypto economy and decentralized naming system ready on block one. So look out, ICANN. If anyone's interested, you can learn more at handshake.org. To start saving today, visit purse.io or see the links in the show notes. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. So there's another angle here, which is instead of rolling back the chain, one of the proposals was to blacklist the addresses. And a lot of people, I think mostly uninvolved people and, and, and people who are fairly new to, to, to Bitcoin, felt that these addresses should be blacklisted to prevent the thief from gaining from uh, the theft, right? And this is another common theme that pops up when things like this happen and blacklisting is often proposed. Again, this is not an easy thing to do. It, it creates massive collateral damage and creates a terrible precedent. But I think it's worth exploring a bit how that would work, what can be done against it, what impact does it cause? 
so first of all, how would that work? Um, it would work either on the periphery or it would work in the protocol. Doing it on the periphery is easier but less effective. Doing it in the protocol is effective but very damaging to other reasons. On the periphery, what I mean is you contact all of the exchanges that you can contact and you tell them, hey guys, help us out here. Um, please blacklist the following addresses and don't allow coins tainted by these addresses to, to uh, exchange or to be deposited um, on your exchange. Great. And, you know, that's already happening to a certain extent. Uh, it's happening with certain uh, addresses that were involved in, in the empty Gox theft, etc. It's happening on the periphery because exchanges are under legal obligations uh, under know your customer and anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing regulations to do that, to implement blacklist of tainted coins that are involved in criminal activities or things like that. That's less effective though, because the complexities of running a blacklist in a system where you can create an infinite number of addresses in a matter of seconds, and you can create transactions that bounce addresses as quickly as you can, um, means that you have to decide how far back to look. If you say, I'm going to look back three hops, and if it's tainted, I won't accept it, the attacker just has to create one more transaction and do four hops. If you do five, they'll do six. If you do six, they'll do eight. If you do eight, they'll do 12. And if you do 12, then suddenly you notice that everything's been tainted because <laughs> the more hops you look back, the more complicated it gets. And all, all the attacker needs to do is break it into a small UTXO that is likely to be used in change transaction and send it to a merchant who's likely to include that as change in a bunch of transactions that their customers are doing, and you can really fan out the taint, if you know what I mean. You can really uh, create, uh, take that tainted coin and, and purposely make it touch as many untainted coins as possible until everything's dirty, right? It's like the cocaine on a dollar bill. Eventually, all of them have it. So it's very difficult to implement blacklists because you really only catch the idiots and you catch the innocent people who are like, I got this from a reputable place. Why have you suspended my account? It creates a massive customer service backlash because everybody complains about the fact that they're not, they haven't done anything wrong, but their account is now being frozen. And because of the regulations, the exchanges stopped talking to you. So now you've got radio silence from like, they took my money and now they won't answer my emails. <laughs> Uh, it, it becomes very difficult to implement. The other one is to do it at the protocol level, to, to basically introduce a validation rule uh, within the protocol that says a transaction that spends anything that's been tainted by this is not a valid transaction. That is extremely dangerous. Um, and it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work because most people wouldn't implement that. Uh, I wouldn't put it in my software, come hello high water. Um, but also because if you do implement it in, as a minority, what happens is you fork yourself off the network. You invalidate that transaction. Everybody else doesn't. And so now you're no longer on the network, right? You, you're refusing valid blocks and all of their descendants, which means your node will get stuck on that block that contains that tainted transaction that only you are rejecting. So you actually need a majority of the nodes to do it before it's active. And you have a signaling and coordination problem because if you start rejecting before a majority of the nodes, you get cut off the network. Um, so you have to know whether other nodes are willing to reject it before they reject it. Do you see what I'm talking about here? Effectively, it is a hard fork. 
So, I mean, that's really what it is, is it's a protocol upgrade that some people might ideologically choose not to adopt because it goes against the principles that they think are important within the protocol. Yes. Now, because it's a limitation of the rules, because you're saying, I think one more thing is invalid than before, strictly speaking, it's a soft fork. It's restricting as opposed to enabling. It will still be valid to nodes that haven't upgraded, but it, it will fork you off. So if you, if you adopt it, so you can't adopt it until everyone's adopted it and you don't know if everyone's adopted, so you need some kind of signaling mechanism and you don't know if you can believe that signaling. It's almost as if you're trying to coordinate a group of generals who are attacking a Byzantine city <laughs> and you have no means of, co of confirming the truth of your message without some kind of, uh, what should we call it, proof? Um, <laughs> it's basically this idea of coordinating a distributed system to achieve consensus at the same time on the blacklist is a Byzantine fault tolerant system. We know of a good way to solve it, and you're trying to do it without that good way. Assume for a second that these ideological concerns do not exist, and instead we all agree, you know, all of the users of Bitcoin, that this is a good idea and it should be in at the protocol level. Given that it is a solution to that problem, could a blacklist be integrated in such a way into the protocol such that it is a distributed and community-driven you know, decision-making process? Obviously, this is giving more pitchforks to the mob, potentially. But could it be done like that if there was buy-in? It, it could, because if there is social consensus and no pushback, then uh, this can be pushed by the miners. The miners can implement this consensus change, and as long as there's no objection or serious enough objection, um, then theoretically, at least, they could implement blacklists in the protocol. They shouldn't, and they shouldn't because of their own self-interest, because as soon as you do that, you open a can of worms that cannot be closed again. Right. So technically it's possible, but from like a, a, an actual game theory in terms of how the network is playing out in real life perspective, it's just not going to happen because those incentives don't align enough to actually orient well, so on this. So here's what happens next. The, the, the problem is there would be principled opposition. Once again, I would be running software to oppose such a move. I don't know how successful I'd be at that, but certainly I know many other people who on principle would never allow blacklists in the protocol. As far as I'm concerned, that's not Bitcoin anymore. Bye-bye. But um, let's say it did happen. Now that miners have demonstrated the ability to introduce blacklists at the protocol level, guess what comes next? The responsibility to introduce blacklists. They're now going to get inundated by every law enforcement agency everywhere on the planet to maintain a blacklist that changes several hundred times per second uh, because they're going to start getting automated requests from everywhere in the world for violations of every moral standard, legal code, and uh, administrative ruling in every jurisdiction on the planet regarding every transaction. Now, this then becomes an impossible blacklist to maintain. If you don't maintain it, you're under penalty. You're 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 exposing yourself to liability. You know, ability becomes responsibility becomes liability. N not only do you have to try to comply, but then the problem becomes. These blacklists will grow so fast, uh, the ability to create new addresses makes it possible for attackers to start an arms race where they overwhelm the blacklist curators. So it's just like trying to update your antivirus, right? Eventually you get interrupted every few minutes to update it, uh, and it's always out of date. So it's not effective at achieving that goal, but it becomes an enormous administrative burden. And you're going to end up catching some people who 
were improperly put on the blacklist, and if they're in your jurisdiction as the minor, the same jurisdiction as the minor, they're going to be find it easier to sue the minor for including them in the blacklist than the jurisdictions that are outside for not including something in them. It, it, it turns into a legal morass. Basically, the consensus protocol is now going to be adjudicated in the courts. And at that point, that chain is dead. Basically, from a practical perspective, that chain is dead. So if you open that door, it never closes again, and that chain is dead. And because of the principled opposition, there will be another chain in which blacklists didn't get implemented, which probably has lower hash rate with the few miners who kept their principled opposition to this. And that chain will continue, and that chain will be Bitcoin. So this actually isn't hypothetical. You know, we're talking about this in the context of Bitcoin primarily here, but um, actually, you know, uh, looking at an article from Cointelegraph in uh, earlier this year, February 25th, 2019, a hacker stole $7.7 million worth of EOS from a hacked account due to an alleged failed update by an EOS block producer of their blacklists. The EOS blockchain has a feature that requires block producers, which is effectively their equivalent of miners to blacklist compromised accounts. All 21 top block producers are required to blacklist a certain account in order for the blacklist to function properly. On February 22nd, a new EOS block producer dubbed games.eos apparently did not update the blacklist for the EOS main account. And then subsequently, they were able to effectively pull this money out of a, an account that was at the blockchain level blacklisted because one of 21 coordinating participants who are all paid for that role didn't actually, you know, do the job. And so that one hole in that. So, I mean, like, I think that really right there speaks to the coordination challenge here of doing something like this with Bitcoin, right? They couldn't even do it with 21 people whose entire job and very well paid job for that matter is to do this. So how could we expect this to happen in a decentralized, very, very kind of uh, adversarial environment? When I read that incident, I started laughing so hard that I had tears coming out of my eyes. And the person who was in the room at that moment thought I was watching a comedy show or something and wanted to watch what I was watching because they, because I was <laughs> laughing so hard. And I know that that's not a mature thing to do, you know, Schadenfreude being gleeful at the misfortune of others, but it, it just demonstrates it so beautifully with such karmic irony that I couldn't help myself. I was so tickled by it. It was delicious. And, uh, and I, I feel that I'm going to have to pay the karmic price for that, but it was worth it. It was totally <laughs> worth it. So yeah, it's I a mean, willing these, trade. <laughs> right. These things happen in real life and they happen very, very soon after you open that door. It didn't take very long from the introduction of blacklist until a failure of the blacklist. Let's be honest. How many jurisdictions particularly care about the legal implication of blacklisting EOS transactions? Not many. With Bitcoin, it would be a different story. They already know about it. They already know that, that they, they, they already have legal cases. They have criminal convictions. They have seized assets. They, the, there's dozens of jurisdictions around the world where there's already you know, active law enforcement involvement in this. They, so. If they were given a door through which to start introducing blacklists, uh, the time between introducing the blacklists and law enforcement pouring in with requests would be very short. So it's a different game altogether. This takes a much higher with, with Bitcoin, and uh, quite honestly, it wouldn't work. The, the nice thing is that it, that scheme would fail very quickly too. If, in fact, 
There is principled opposition to blacklists causing a fork where there are two versions of Bitcoin, one in which blacklists have been implemented and one in which not. And the vast majority of economic activity shifts, which I think is likely, to the one where blacklists have not been implemented. All of the exchanges will have to follow. They have no choice. All of the merchants will have to follow. They have no choice. And at that point, the chain that got the blacklist has zero economic activity. And the one that doesn't have the blacklist has all the economic activity. You know what happened just there? The blacklist didn't blacklist anything because those coins will still keep moving. They'll just move on the other chain where there's economic activity. So after all of that effort and all of that drama, the funny thing is that in the end, the effect will be zero. All you need is principled opposition. And, and that's the essence of consensus. Consensus is not decided solely by miners. It's a multifaceted aspect that emerges from the collaboration of several different constituencies which have different risk profiles, different motivations, different sets of incentives, and different things at stake. And all of them come together. And when something like this happens, many of them will break off and introduce principled opposition. And that's why it will work. That's, I think, the basis of the robustness of this system. There is social consensus in Bitcoin too. It's not just technical consensus. The difference is that technical consensus creates much higher stakes. I think that you know, we don't agree on everything, but the important things when it comes to issues like this, it seems like there is really broad buy-in across the community, even amongst people who don't believe it ideologically, but just appreciate that the repercussions of taking steps that take us outside of that ideology will almost certainly have a negative impact on how the token is perceived as a whole and how bank, basically cryptocurrency is perceived. I think there's a wide perception that if Bitcoin is discredited, then that has a, a very bad impact on the entire community. Discredited not in the naive and simple approach of, hey, it's used by pornographers and terrorists and criminals, but discredited in that it can't fulfill the actual principles that it, that it claims to have. And yeah, that would be damaging. There's a bit proposal for a script update called op check block at height, which uh, allows you to introduce that in the script of your transaction that makes the transaction valid only if the block at a specific height has a specific hash. Basically what you're doing is you're checkpointing your transaction. You're saying this transaction can only be valid on a chain where the block at height X has this hash. It does two things. One is it provides a generic replay protection. So if you have like a, a fork between Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, you can make your transaction non-replayable by simply picking the block right after the fork on the chain you want, and that transaction is only valid on that chain. But the other thing it does is it makes it very easy for users to do the principled opposition we talked about, because all they have to do is keep anchoring their transactions to blocks that are known from six blocks back or 10 blocks back or whatever they want to set. And that means that if you try to go back and reorg the, the blockchain more than the number of blocks that they, they're using in their transaction, these transactions are not replayable on the new chain, which means that you've now increased the risk of doing a reorg by the cost of all of the transaction fees, but you've also given the users a very powerful tool because they can continue to introduce that in their transactions after the reorg 
and basically make sure that all of those transactions only go to the other chain, cannot be mined. So they basically take away their economic activity from the miners in a way that the miners can choose simply to replay those transactions on the other chain. So um, this is a protocol level upgrade, but where we'll, we'll actually see this in practice is actually within wallet software itself, either as kind of an automatic feature that is just naturally putting this into play or as something that a user can opt to use as a way to express this uh, ideological disagreement. There, there's already a feature called fee sniping protection, which puts the block number in the transaction as a time lock. So a lot of transactions do that where your transaction is time locked to the next block so that it can't be put earlier, so it can't be reorged into a previous block, allowing the miners to effectively pull it into the past and collect fees to compensate for a reorg. That's just using time lock, which already exists, and, and a lot of wallets implement, including Bitcoin Core by default on all transactions, because it costs nothing. This would be similar. It adds a bit to the size of your script, but not significantly enough to not be worth it, and you could turn it on or turn it off it's a soft fork because it, again, restricts the rule set. And it's a very powerful user feature because it puts a lot of power in wallet users and node operators. It's the most likely way you would see developers give users a choice to fight a reorg would be by simply pushing that change through quickly, making it the default on wallets. And then users can basically say, I'm not playing the reorg game. Here are my transactions. They can only go in the original chain. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's show is sponsored by Purse.io, with content for today's show provided by Adam B. Levine, Andreas Antonopoulos, and Stephanie Murphy. This episode was edited by Oscar Hamilton and Adam B. Levine, with music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at Let's Talk See you next time.